Okay, greetings to all our participants. Please, before we begin, can you chat me a greeting? Just put your name in and where you are, and uh, then I'll know that you can see and hear me. Eitan, nice to have you with us. Sasha, whoa, my boys are there first. Alex, Ellie, Natan, whoa, Elias, Andrew, Howard, Esther, Alma, okay, Natasha, Regina, Lisa, <coughs> Otniel, Yohanan. Okay, so I presume that people can see me and hear me. Um, Elizabeth, nice to have you with us. We're not in your wing, but we are, uh, we are on the line. Um, Claire, forgive me for not greeting everyone because I can't. Uh, I can't. I can't. I can't see. I can't. I can't do that. Thank you to Gemma who's making this operate technically behind the scenes, and thanks to the JLE and to all of you. <clears throat> I'm going to talk a little bit. I was asked to talk about epidemics, pandemics, <coughs> and the Jewish response, <coughs> and um, <coughs> what we, how we understand why things happen, and some. Uh, some related uh, stuff, and then you are welcome to ask questions. Give me a moment just to introduce the subject, and then please feel free to ask any questions. Okay, we've got awesome students with us. Amazing. Who, who's, uh, who's streaming that for me? Is that uh, Rabbi Bloch in South Africa? Who, which awesome students? <coughs> Type me a message, please. I'd like to know which awesome students that is. Are we talking about awesome gap year students <coughs> in Israel, <coughs> Australia, in the middle of the night? <coughs> okay, you're just finding them. Good, 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 good. Okay, well, in Israel. Okay, you're all welcome from wherever you, wherever you are logging in. First of all, let's just deal with a few technicalities. I'm sure everyone's keeping up with the news, <coughs> but maybe just to have a bit of technical background. I spoke this morning to Professor Barry Shub, who's a leading virologist, Professor Emeritus, as it happens in South Africa, with a lifetime in virology. I just want to clarify some of the, some of the points. I've been speaking to intensivists around the world as well, uh, friends in Chicago, New York, <coughs> various other places, some of them making very tough decisions. I see doctors in London as well um, who are having to decide on treating people, already starting to having, having to think about triaging people, which means make decisions about who gets treated and who doesn't. We're not yet at the desperate, uh, <coughs> here in England, we're not yet at the desperate stage that Italy went through. But unfortunately, unfortunately the issues, I'm also getting lots of questions from doctors around the world who are being forced to work. One doctor in Detroit. I've had a few questions from pregnant lady doctors whose uh, hospitals are making them, making them work. They're not sure what their risk is. So there are lots of questions here to discuss. They're coming in thick and fast. And we are dealing now with questions mainly in the realm of uh, triage, which patients get treated, which ones don't, uh, risk to doctors. Each of these, of course, is a major subject. You're welcome to be in touch with us through the JLE. We're happy to email you or send you out links to specific talks on these subjects, literature, references, and recorded material if you're a doctor working in this, in this field. Um, and I've had some difficult conversations with ICU doctors going into work <coughs> when they're aware that they'll be put in situations that are extremely difficult, and, and more particularly, Jewish doctors who are going to be put in situations where they will be brought into conflict with Jewish law on matters of life and death. Let me just give you one very painful example of that. In the preeminent Journal of Medicine, that's the New England Journal of Medicine, 
both last week and this week. There were two articles on rationing ventilators, and they both were very clear about one principle, which is that if a person's on a ventilator and uh, is, it appears clear that they will not survive, or it appears unlikely that they'll survive, and we have another young person, younger person, healthier person, person who's more likely to survive waiting for a machine, we, they've, they've, made, they've made the decision, at least a very strong recommendation, you're talking about uh, probably the most um, respected authorities in the world, that the correct moral action will be to actually switch off the machine. Let's say, kill, actively, with your own hands. That means, take them off the machine, because they'll die immediately. People who they're considered to be hopeless, or much more hopeless than others, and give the machines to the other people. In Jewish law, that's not acceptable. It is certainly acceptable to make choices about who gets the machine, but to actually actively take the life of someone who's on a machine to give it to someone else, that is extremely problematic in Judaism. The default position, absolutely, absolutely not. And so we now have Jewish doctors who are uh, probably going to be put in that situation. In fact, in the, in the most recent article in the journal this week, the recommendation was that hospital ethics committees should actually review the cases, and when the decision is made to take someone off a machine, they recommend that it should not be the doctors treating the patient to do that because it will be too emotionally difficult for them. It will be the members of the ethics committee who will go around and switch off the machine, take the responsibility. Anyway, this is, this is seriously what's being, being proposed. This is not okay from a Jewish point of view, that particular, that particular recommendation. Many others are in accordance with Jewish law, such as uh, basic triage protocols. We certainly agree with giving uh, the best chance to the most people. <coughs> Uh, giving to those who need it most. And there's certain basic triage principles you can look up in my book, Dangerous Disease and Dangerous Therapy, a basic overview of Jewish triage decisions. I must say, for many years I've been teaching this material, and it's always been, what can I say, fun to teach, enjoyable to go into all the halachic aspects. Unfortunately now, in this situation, it's a little, a little less pleasant because we actually talk about decisions. You know we're having an epidemic now that is ramping up. We've had deaths already here in London. And uh, unfortunately, <coughs> we still appear to be on the upswing of the curve. Let's hope this is where it stops. <laughs> month of Nissan, the month of miracles. But we actually don't know. So maybe I'll give a five-minute uh, summary of the epidemic and where it is and some of its issues. There's so much misinformation online just to get some of the medical and epidemiological facts clear. Uh, you'll forgive me if you're a doctor, you don't need this. But very briefly, as you know, we're in the middle of an, a viral epidemic. That's an RNA virus, um, which is a coronavirus. We, one of the main problems here is that we don't actually know enough about it. So there's been an explosion of research <coughs> going on in the last couple of weeks <coughs> where research is being done to look at the virus, the body's response to it, antibodies, drugs that might be useful. But one of the main uh, um, elements of, of concern or uh, unease, anxiety, tension in this field is that although we know a lot about coronaviruses in general, we don't know much about this one. Some of the mysteries about this virus are what makes it so infectious, why is it so effective at um, infecting people before you even know you have the symptoms, which of course is a classic and primary way to spread. You're busy spreading the virus around when you feel fine. Don't know that you have to isolate yourself. That's one of the issues. Um, we don't yet know if the virus mutates. That's a very important thing to know. If a virus mutates and changes its form, like flu does every year, then it means you could get reinfected. So if you have the virus, 
At the moment, we're assuming that people who've had it will be immune, at least in the short term. We're not 100% sure about that. One of the questions I put to the professor today was, how can, uh, how, how, with what degree of certainty can we assume that a person who's been infected, and we know they've had it, have either been through the classical symptoms or better, they've had two, two tests, they've been tested during the, the, uh, the illness, and then tested afterwards, and tested negative when they recover, to what extent can we assume that they're immune? The reason I ask that question is because we would very much like to use people who have had the disease to go out and tend to others. We don't want uninfected people, particularly vulnerable people, going out and doing their shopping and, uh, and mixing with people, of course. We're in total lockdown. But if we can have hundreds and maybe thousands of people who've been through it and recovered, younger people who've recovered, if we can assume that they're immune, which means they're protected, they won't get it, and furthermore, they won't spread it, we can send them out in ever-increasing numbers to do other people's shopping, to visit them, to sit with elderly people, visit vulnerable people, and know that they're immune to the disease. They won't be spreading it, and they won't be at risk. Well, he gave me a guarded answer to that question. It's probably okay. Again, we don't really know. There's one recorded case in the literature of a patient in Germany who apparently was reinfected. Right? In other words, recovered, and a week or so later, after, after virological negative testing, was reinfected. Now, that's only one case, and I don't think we can build a, we can build a, a, a much on that case. It's unlikely to be, to be the norm. <coughs> uh, it's unusual for a virus to mutate that rapidly, to mutate that rapidly. So, unfortunately, we don't know. If people need to put themselves at risk at the moment, it should certainly be those who are younger and have been infected. And as the epidemic or the pandemic sweeps through a country, we'll have ever-increasing numbers of recovered people. The vast majority of people will recover, especially young people. 96, 97, 98% of people under 20 or under 30, probably under 40, maybe even under 50, will have recovered just fine. And if we can demonstrate we can become more confident about the fact that they are immune, then these are the people who can start running society, opening up businesses, that need that are more essential going into hospitals doctors who've recovered uh, can with more reassurance <coughs> be the ones who expose themselves <coughs> that's something I'm hoping will happen very soon unfortunately we don't know <coughs> another thing we don't know we don't have all the tests we'd like we do have COVID tests but we don't yet have a serological test serological test means that you can test the blood of somebody who has the disease and has had it and see where they are in the course of the illness. What happens with many infections in the body, including viral infections, is that there are two types of antibodies, IgG and IgM antibodies, as they're called. One of them spikes rapidly. So as a person gets an infection, you see that the antibodies rise rapidly. And as the body deals with the infection, that antibody comes down. And then slightly later, you get a gradual rise of another antibody, which lasts for a long time and in many cases a lifetime. And so by looking at the proportion of these two antibodies, you can tell very accurately where the person is in the cycle of the illness. You can tell whether they have what's called the acute antibody response. That means they're actually ill at the moment. Their body's actively dealing with the infection. Or they have the convalescent um, or chronic um, antibody, which means that they've had it some time in the past. As you probably know, pregnant ladies are tested to see whether they have antibodies to rubella, that's German measles, which tells us that they had the disease in the past or they were immunized, they were vaccinated. And so that lasts for a long time. And a lot of research is taking place now <coughs> to give us... <coughs> 
excuse me, these serological tests. <coughs> so we'll have this um, tool which will help us know whether people in fact have been infected or not. Um, that's going to be important. We don't have it yet. Third point about this virus is we don't yet have a medical treatment. The British intensive care units are not yet giving uh, chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine. They, be they believe there's not enough evidence for it yet. They are giving antibiotics, obviously, because we are concerned about secondary bacterial infections. We don't have antibiotics that deal with viruses, but um, we do have antibiotics that deal with secondary bacterial infections, which is a common commensal. It uh, goes together with viral infections in 1918. The thinking is that a lot of people died not so much from the viral pneumonia, but from the damage to the lungs that allowed bacteria to invade. And of course we do antibiotics for many bacterial infections. So that treatment we do have, but we don't have an effective <coughs> antiviral. There are antivirals being tested and trialed now. <coughs> there is one <coughs> that is likely to be <coughs> effective, but we won't know until further testing has been done. So we don't have a preventative medicine yet. We don't have a... Um, treating medicine yet, although as time goes by that, that might change and it's changing day by day. Um, so those are some of the, um, another worrying feature of this, <coughs> this illness <coughs> is that it's particularly infectious, not as infectious as measles, which has an R factor as they call it of about somewhere between 12 and 18, which means for every person infected with measles, you will infect about 12 or more people around you extremely infectious. That's why we're so concerned about immunizing children. <clears throat> this disease probably has an R factor of two or three, but you can imagine what happens when one person infects two or three. <clears throat> that happens before they even know they're ill. <clears throat> then, of course, those two or three <clears throat> infect two or three others, and you know the story, I'm sure. Classic story. I don't know whether it's true or not. Probably not, but it's a well-known classic, so I'll tell it to you anyway. And that is the classic story of the man who invented chess. No one really knows who invented chess, but there's a story about him anyway. And the story is, after inventing this brilliant game, the king in whose kingdom he lived called him in and complimented him on inventing what is known, <clears throat> I'm sure you know, as the royal game, which is chess. And then the king said to him, this is such an amazing and brilliant game, name your, name your prize. What would you like as a reward for inventing this game. <clears throat> so the man said, Your Majesty, <coughs> all I want <coughs> is one grain of wheat. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> all I want is one grain of wheat on the first square of the chessboard, two grains of wheat on the second square, four grains on the third square, eight grains, double them, that's all I want. Just a grain of wheat. And the king said to him, Is that all? That's all? If we start doubling up grains of wheat on the chessboard, we start with 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64. I mean, how much wheat will you get? You know, like a sack full? And the man said, Your Majesty, that's what I want. Well, do the calculation yourself. You will find that long before you get to the end of the chessboard, <coughs> you've reached a number <coughs> more than all the wheat in the kingdom. And by the time you reach the end of the chessboard, <coughs> you've reached a, a figure something like all the, the number of all the atoms in the universe. Check it out yourself. Quite amazing. People need to realize this. This is an exponential growth. So if one person only infects two people, only two, and the two people infect two others, and those two, those infect two others, very soon you have a number in the millions. <coughs> in fact, it's very easy to reach a number which equals the total number of people in the world, <coughs> certainly in any given country. So that is a 
problem with the spread of this disease. A good feature of this illness, it does not seem to be killing children, thankfully. Thank Hashem for that. Uh, the younger you are, the, the better off you are. Probably a function of the uh, nature of the immature immune system of children, although it's not quite clear yet. And fortunately, this disease is not affecting the young. It is skewed towards the elderly and the people who have <coughs> uh, disease states, <coughs> high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease, of course lung disease, uh, cancer patients, people with immune suppression, as we expect. But it's not quite as skewed towards, um, towards those vulnerable people as influenza. But influenza very much targets the, the extremely vulnerable uh, every year. When I say targets, I mean it affects everyone, but the vulnerable people who die from influenza every year are the ones who are particularly vulnerable. And with corona, the, the skew doesn't seem to be quite as much. That means there are people in their 50s and uh, 60s. There are people who are, uh, with flu would be less... Uh, occupy less of the spectrum of vulnerable people than corona so that is another <clears throat> that's another variable anyway that's where we are <clears throat> at the moment in the epidemic <clears throat> just a couple of important facts that you need to know on the, on the ground practically once you're exposed to someone we don't know that you clear for about 14 days okay so let's just get this clear in terms of isolation first of all right now obviously everybody should be isolated Completely, everyone should be locked down utterly and completely. We don't want anyone out, right? And the, the, the problem is going out shopping for food, <clears throat> medicines. We need to absolutely minimize that um, because uh, it's those point of contacts. If everyone's locked into the house and stays in the house and everything that's delivered to you at your door is uh, wiped down and sterilized, including the inside of the packages because that's been handled by someone in a packing house or a factory, then no one will get it. And if everyone's locked down completely, the disease will stop. This is transmitted at the moment from human to human. If we stop all human interaction, all we're going to have is a surge of people who've got it in the last week or two, and then it will stop. Right? Let, let me say that again. It's very important to know. If everybody throughout the world stays home, literally stays home, all that's going to happen is people will infect each other in the home who've already been infected. That will happen. And after that, the disease will stop. Let me, let, let me make that clear. If everybody stays home, okay, and no one is around to infect anyone else, we stop the disease in its tracks. It's very important to realize that. Of course, that's virtually impossible, and it'll be grumbling along probably in the population. Uh, it will not, no longer be an epidemic, because the people who are vulnerable, are too, the people who are not immune are too few and far between, probably near 60-70% level of the population to get to that before that happens. But... We will stop it in practical terms if we all stay home. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so, of course, then we'll be vulnerable <clears throat> to another round of this disease next winter or some other time. Hopefully by then <coughs> it will have changed to a less virulent form <coughs> or it will die a natural death or we'll have a vaccine. A lot of research is being put into that, so there are many possibilities. So let's just get some of the figures. From the time you're exposed to someone, somebody coughs on you, or uh, you're exposed to their nasal secretions. Nasal secretions seem to carry more virus than throat secretions, but they're both infectious. From that time, if you are infected, or you've been in contact with someone who's infected, we are looking at 14 days, 14 days we, before we know that you clear. Most people will develop symptoms within four to five days, or six or seven or eight days. By two weeks, the vast majority of people who have not shown any effects will be clear, but we need to take that to three weeks, 
to be absolutely sure. In practice, the basic recommendations are 14 days, because that will cover the vast majority of people, and we will know that by the time you get to 14 days, you're probably fine. We think that most people who are exposed and actually contract the virus <coughs> will show some symptoms. They might be mild, <coughs> but we think they'll show symptoms. We think it's probably a very small number who will actually be infected and then become infectious without knowing that they've got it at all. We're not sure about that, but that seems to be the fact at the moment. If you are infected, that means you're exposed. Within the first 7 to 14 days, you show signs, you get the disease, and you recover. At what point do you become non-infectious? And we probably need to stretch that to 21 days. Okay, so let's get that clear. Day of exposure, or some would say from the first day of illness, <coughs> right, first day of illness, um, we know that most people who get ill from the first day of their, of their showing signs and symptoms, 14 days later, would have been through the cycle and been no longer infectious. But the professor's opinion is that we probably need to stretch that to three weeks. So again, the incubation period of this, of this virus is somewhere between four to five days to two weeks, maybe a little bit longer, but we think that's what it is, four to five days up to two weeks. Two weeks after being exposed, you don't have it, you're probably not going to get it. And from the time you do get it, or from the first day of illness, let's say, you're probably infectious, those who do get it, whether you know you, whether you, know you have it or not, whether you have symptoms or not, for at least two weeks, and to be safe, probably three weeks. After that, even though viral tests can detect viral material in your blood, um, you're probably not infectious. <clears throat> I'm just getting a comment on my screen. <clears throat> NHS says people should stay home seven days after first symptoms. They don't show. Yeah, in indeed, that's quite correct. <clears throat> seven days after symptoms. <clears throat> that's likely. That's more or less 14 days after exposure. By the way, <coughs> by the way. At the moment, we're not saying that people should only stay home for seven days. We're saying that people should be staying home completely, Alma. So let's not forget that. I don't know what the WHO and CDC guidelines are at the moment. I'm just giving you the, the probable epidemiologic facts. makes a lot of sense to follow the guidelines that are in place in your, <coughs> your, local, your locale. But at the moment, everyone should be... The decision, international decision, has been to put everyone in lockdown. There are many good reasons for that. And I'm not going to go through those again. So that's where we're holding in terms of the virus. One last fact that people always ask, what is the mortality rate? I've explained this many times. We don't actually know. <clears throat> there are two important numbers. I'll explain it again very briefly. There's what's known as the case fatality rate and there's the mortality rate. <clears throat> important to bear these in mind so you understand what's being said. The, the case, fatality rate, case fatality rate is the number of people, the percentage, number of people out of every hundred who die after presenting with the disease. So you stand at the front door of your hospital, 100 people walk through the door who are sick, what percentage of those people will die? That's the case fatality rate, the number of cases who will die out of the number of cases of the disease, not of the population, of the disease. So of the known disease, diagnosed disease. In that case, that figure has ranged widely throughout the world. It's been quoted as 5% or more in Italy, and around uh, 2 or 3% or even less uh, in some countries and in uh, South Korea and certain other places, less than 1%. The reason for the difference is because there's a difference in the case fatality rate and the mortality rate. The mortality rate means the percentage of people who will die of everybody who gets the disease, whether you know about it or not. Let me say that again. Every 100 people who get infected, whether they show symptoms or not, serious or mild, how many 
of those 100 people who die is the mortality rate. That's the absolute mortality rate. <clears throat> but of course, you can only measure <clears throat> the case fatality rate. You can't measure people you don't know. So you're measuring the proportion of people who die from every 100 people that you have diagnosed and know are ill. Well, obviously, that number goes down the more people you find. Right? I hope that's clear. If you're measuring only the sickest people who walk into your hospital, those are the only ones you know about, you might find that 5 to 6 to 7% of them die. Right? Because you're dealing with people who are sick enough to come into a hospital. But let's remember, for all, each of those uh, 100 people who walk into the hospital sick, <clears throat> there might be another 100 or 1,000 who are not sick enough and didn't come in. So those people are not sick enough and they don't die. So then, of course, you start diluting the case fatality rate into the mortality rate. If we diagnosed everybody who got infected, the case fatality rate would be the same as the mortality rate. I hope this little bit of uh, simple mathematics is clear. So, in countries where they do tremendous testing, go out and within days test 100,000 people, as has been done in some locales in China and Singapore and um, in small countries where you can do it, South Korea, places like that, there the case fatality rate which approaches the mortality rate or making some extrapolations, we think that the mortality rate is probably not even 1%. Probably, we're not sure yet. <clears throat> My guess is it'll be 0.7. Maybe we'll be blessed to hear that it's only 0.5. That's lots of people. Let's bear that in mind. That's lots and lots of people. If the case, if the true mortality rate is 1%, it's lots of people. Let me remind you that in 1918, during the Spanish flu epidemic, the, big, the, the most lethal event in the history of the human, human race, most lethal in terms of numbers, not most lethal in terms of proportion, the Black Death in Europe in the 1400s and again in the 1600s, which, of course, the Jews were blamed for. Right? Many Jewish communities were wiped out. Dozens of Jewish communities were wiped out in pogroms because the non-Jews accused the Jews of having begun the plague. But be that as it may, <coughs> the mortality rate <coughs> of um, the genuine mortality rate of flu in <coughs> 1918 was about 2%. And that, that was enough. It's only 2%, but it killed at least 50 million people, and some say much more than that. 2 million Americans died. So um, if we're dealing with a mortality rate here that is uh, less than that, a final mortality rate, unfortunately, when you're talking about millions or even billions of people, that, unfortunately, is a lot of people who will fall into that very small percentage, just to give some idea of the percentages. The good news, of course, is that it's only a percent or maybe less. Plague had a 30 to 40 to maybe 50 to 60 percent mortality, right? The plague in London in the 1600s or the plague in the 1400s had decimated populations. Ebola and Marburg, those scary diseases, much more dangerous. Anyway, that is a basic overview of where we are now. Can't emphasize strongly enough. Stay home. Uh, question from Alex. That's a good question. Alex is asking, can you withhold a ventilator from a patient on the chance that another patient with better chances comes in? We can answer that, fortunately, quite clearly. The answer is no. And it's the chance that another patient will come in is close to 100%. So let me make this clear. You have a patient who comes into your hospital, there's a ventilator, but you know that this person is unlikely to survive. They have many indications, medically, clinically, they probably won't survive on the ventilator. But there's no one else present, so ordinarily, of course, you put them on the machine. Half an hour later, someone else arrives, much younger, much fitter, desperately ill, but much more likely to recover. Now, you're in trouble. You can't switch off the machine on the first person and kill them. 
right? Even though they may die <coughs> a day later anyway. <coughs> you can't push aside one life for another. However, <coughs> however, if the first person comes in, they're not yet on the machine, <coughs> and they are very unlikely to survive, and someone else is on their way in. They're more distant, they haven't arrived yet, they're at the door of the hospital, or they're in the ambulance on the way in, and they have a 90% chance of survival. The patient in front of you has a 5 to 10% chance of survival. Or they're what we call a chayesha, that means they have only temporary life, short-term life. <coughs> the person on the way in has long-term life if you give them the machine. We're allowed to give the machine to the more distant person, or the second person. We don't use first-come, first-served in that particular scenario. We are allowed to give the person, the machine, to the second person. In fact, we'd be obliged to do that. Again, I'm not going into the complexities and the nuances. That is the basic Jewish law. Your question is, if the um, second person is not on their way in, they're just very likely to be on their way in, how would we register that? This is a big discussion in halachic sources. I have a whole, a whole share on this you can download. That's called Two Patients, One Ventilator. And you'll find that at simpletoremember.com, or you can get it from the JLE. <clears throat> and I've written about that in my book as well. But the general rule in Judaism is, if there's an overwhelming probability that someone will be here, we register that as a real fact. For example, on Shabbat, an ambulance that goes out to deal with someone is allowed to return on Shabbat to its central location, where it's very likely it will be called again on Shabbat. You're talking about an ambulance in a big city, or a moshav in Israel with a thousand families, where almost every Shabbat the nurse or the doctor is called. They can do things on Shabbat, even though there's no one calling them yet, where it's overwhelming probability that they will be needed. That is the general rule that we follow. Yochanan, can the government ever safely end the lockdown without a resurgence? That's a great question, Yochanan. And the true answer to that is no one really knows. No one really knows. So the reason for locking everyone down is to buy time. Let me try and explain this very clearly. Even if we knew there'd be a resurgence, even if we knew there'd be a resurgence, we still need to lock people down at the moment. The reason is because it's very important to understand this. If we let the disease spread through the community and hope that everyone who gets it does in fact remain immune, that we don't deal with a disastrously mutating virus which will keep recycling through the community in different forms all the time, which is a nightmare scenario. It's what happens with flu every year, by the way, just that it takes a year to mutate into the new form. There's no reason why that couldn't happen quicker. <coughs> the more people get infected, the more chance there is of the virus mutating. <coughs> but um, even if we knew that would be the case, if we lock down people, what happens is instead of getting a surge <coughs> through the community, which means that uh, a million people in England or 10 million people get infected and the hospitals are swamped with hundreds of thousands of people <coughs> who need ventilators, which they cannot deal with. And I'm sure you know these stories of Italian doctors crying in the hallways of the hospital, right, because they put in those impossible situations. We smooth out the curve so that people come in a much more orderly fashion. People come into hospital, they're given time to recover and leave before the next person comes in and gives us time to do that, gives us time to build large pools of institutions with ventilators, staff them properly, train the people to use them. Ventilators can save lives. Even on the sickest of patients who actually can't breathe and they put on ventilators, about half of those people, even the very sickest, about half of those people uh, <coughs> survive. So the ventilator will save tremendous amount of lives, gets people over the difficult phase while the lungs recover. And this is not really disputed. 
So if you sm- flatten the curve, uh, Yochanan, you save all those lives. The second thing you do when you buy time, so the first thing you do is you allow the, the health services to cope. The second thing you do <coughs> is you <coughs> allow time for preparation. Uh, hospitals to be built, ventilator units to be set up. The third thing you do is you gain time for research. As every week goes by, there's an explosion of new knowledge about the virus. There's a tremendously accelerated effort to develop a vaccine. There are also accelerated efforts to find which uh, drug treatments may help. We also are doing a lot of research in finding what make people less infectable, right? whether it's zinc or vitamin C or whatever it is we don't know yet. Uh, so research and knowledge is, is priceless in this area. <clears throat> also gives us time to develop uh, testing kits, rapid testing kits, convalescent serum testing kits. You buy all that time. And therefore, Yochanan, the answer to your question is, even if we, know, even if we knew there'd be a resurgence, this is the way to do it. Of course, then we need to be very careful about controlling the resurgence. Okay, lifting the lid carefully, keeping the vulnerable people still isolated when we see where there's a resurgence. That's what we need to do. The Chinese figures suggest that's not a problem. At least, again, we don't know. But in China, the numbers uh, seem to be staying down. Again, there hasn't been a complete uh, unlocking of the social distancing and the <coughs> population, so we're not sure yet. But China is a tremendous uh, opportunity for these things to be tested. You're dealing with billions of people with very effective public health control measures. And China uh, seems, uh, seems to have done the most amazing uh, work of scientific um, lightning speed, <coughs> dealing with the <coughs> epidemic and research and releasing information, not only according to Chinese sources, but according to external observers. <coughs> so this seems to be the case, and the, the, the results of that aspect of the epidemic are encouraging. So we don't know the answer to your question, Yochanan. But at the moment, this is clearly the way to deal with it, to the best of our knowledge. From Alex, is a doctor obliged to put themselves in some danger to save their patients? The short answer is yes. I gave a shir about that recently. Next week, Emir Hashem, I hope to give a uh, detailed shir about next week. I think we have on Wednesday, Monday and Wednesday nights, if I'm not mistaken, on the JLE at 9 p.m. We have a detailed class. One of them I intend to talk about risk to doctors or caregivers or people dealing with their family members. How much risk are you required to take? to help someone else or to save their life. I'll deal with that uh, fully. The second class I'd like to give is a class on why things happen. How does Hashem run the world in such a way that we can understand why things are happening to us? But the short answer is yes, Alex. If you're a doctor, you're obliged to put yourself in some danger to save your patients. How much danger? Ravashavai says, without going into the derivations and complexities, 5%, maybe 10%, something like that you are <clears throat> certainly allowed to put yourself in that situation. Society has a right to oblige or require and ask for people to fulfill those professions. It applies to policemen, rescue divers, <clears throat> bomb disposal people, certain military situations, military positions, although that invokes another whole area of Jewish law. But if you're a doctor and that's your profession, apart from the mitzvah aspect, yes, it's acceptable to put yourself in risk, at risk to save your patients. And to a certain degree, it's even even obliged. At what point the risk becomes too high for that is another story. There the question becomes not are you obliged to, but are you allowed to. I'll try to cover this in a separate talk next week. Please look online. This will either be on Monday or Wednesday night. I'll, talk, I'll try to talk about a detailed <coughs> exposition, giving all the background sources and practical rulings that we've followed throughout the ages. 
in terms of how much risk you need to undertake <coughs> to deal with uh, if you're a doctor or to save someone else's life under all circumstances. Okay, any questions, please? Any further questions about the technicalities of this situation? Let me talk briefly about the Jewish response of the Torah, the Torah response to this. Um, I explained, I think, in our last session, that I think last night I gave a talk about doing what is normal. One's required to do what is normal as a Jewish effort. I'm not going to repeat that. You can download last night's talk there. I spoke about Ishtadlis and Bitochun. How much effort is a Jew required to make? <clears throat> How much are you required to leave it up to Hashem? <coughs> part one of that discussion. We will go next week or the week after into part two of that discussion in the higher mode. What about people like prophets and spiritual giants? Are they also required to make an effort and how much effort? Please download that. But let me talk briefly for a few moments about why things happen. How do we read situations like this? How do we know what it means for us? What is God trying to tell us? Let me try to deal with a little bit of that, if I may. So, here's the, there's bad news and good news. Let me put it that way. The bad news is we don't know why things happen. We don't know why things happen. There's an axiom that God hides himself. <coughs> I wrote a, a book about this recently. <coughs> You're welcome to take a look at that. That's called As Dawn Ends the Night. <coughs> I can show you a copy. This is a book dealing with As Dawn Ends the Night. Oh, you probably can't read that. It's, it's reading backwards, is it? Do you see that backwards and forwards? I don't know. Maybe I need a mirror. Anyway, it's called As Dawn Ends the Night. Um, do you see that forwards or backwards? Forwards. Good, good. Okay, I'm seeing it backwards for some reason, but okay. So, As Dawn Ends the Night, Akiva Tats, that's my book. My wife did the cover. I'm sure you agree it's a beautiful cover. It's a painting of night and dawn. Right? She's an artist. Beautiful painting. But be that as it may, <clears throat> this is, by the way, the book has a unique feature at the back of the book. It has a pull-out chart, okay, of Jewish history. How do you like that, right? The whole expanse of Jewish history from the beginning of the world, showing all the features of history, the great sages who lived at each time, the great events of Jewish history. And on the back of the chart, it has a <coughs> listing of all the great Jewish personalities in the time of the Gemara and the Mishnah, and the great Rishonim, all the way to the Spanish authorities, the name of each rabbi, and um, great authority, halakhic authority who lived. My son Gavriel, Rabbi Gavriel Tetz, <coughs> generated that, um, that chart. So that's a book that deals with the, the hiddenness of history, why God would hide himself, why there were times in history when he revealed himself, namely in the prophetic era, and in later phases of history when he chose to hide himself. For the last 2,350 years, <coughs> from Purim and Hanukkah, God has gone into hiding. There's good news and bad news in that as well. The, the bad news is tragic. We are left in the dark. We don't see God. We don't see clearly even that He exists directly. The good news is it's much safer that way. When Hashem steps back and the voltage, the spiritual voltage in the world drops, much less likely to get burnt. If you're dealing with a little old rusty battery with a few volts, not much you can do with that. On the other hand, if you touch it, you won't get a shock. If you're dealing with the high tension lines of 11,000 volts that power the city, you can power a whole city with it. Amazing. But if you touch it, you get fried. And therefore, the principle of Jewish history is as we take a step away from God, He takes a step away from us. It's tragic and protective. He takes a step away from us because we stepped away from Him. We suffer the tragedy of feeling His distance. 
And yet, we mean less closely in his presence, the voltage is lower. So we make a misstep, we don't get fried. That's the, that is the mechanism of the distancing of Jewish history. The bad news is, another aspect of bad news is, don't hear Torah from Hashem anymore. Not giving us clearly Torah through prophets like he gave us before. The good news is, <coughs> we get to generate it ourselves. <coughs> That's called the oral law. We move from the phase of the written prophetic law <coughs> into the oral law, Torah Shabal Peh, where we study Gemara, we come up with theories and Torah uh, 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 original, original novelli ourselves. Unbelievable opportunity to um, unbelievable opportunity to create Torah. That's the good side of the of the darkness. <coughs> we find. Let me give you the most extreme expression of this. Doesn't doesn't get doesn't get worse than this. The Gemara says. Let us give gratitude, <coughs> thanks to our forefathers. Because had they not sinned, we would not have been. Isn't that amazing? We thank our forefathers. We show gratitude for the fact that they sinned. The fact that they failed to fix the world. They failed to fix the world and bring it to its completion means that we get some of the work. Amazing. This is a typical Jewish attitude. We take the tragedy and turn it into triumph. We take the disadvantage and see its advantage. Disadvantage, we're still in the world because the world hasn't been perfected. Tragic. On the other hand, we get to play a part in its perfection. Unbelievable opportunity. <clears throat> One of the reasons that history moves for so long, <clears throat> instead of Adam fixing it, bringing it to its completion, or at any stage in history, the world having reached its completion, we are here to do that. Each of us playing a small part in bringing the world to its conclusion and perfection is an unbelievable opportunity. And so, of course, we take the opportunity. By the way, being locked into your home is an opportunity too. Apart from having to survive your children or survive your wife, right? you can also learn to love her more. You can learn to love your children more and deal with them in a different way. can't escape as you normally do. <clears throat> so we take the opportunity and use it. So the general principle of Jewish history, the bad news of Jewish history, is that we don't know why Hashem does things. Even when He does something that's very specific, <clears throat> we don't know what it means. <clears throat> Ali Natan, let me deal with your question a little later. Just come back to me, please, if I don't answer that now. But what I'm saying is this. We do not know why things happen. Even when they appear uncannily meaningful, we still cannot read them. The reason we can't read them is we don't have prophecy. And therefore, God is not revealing, not revealing His uh, modus operandi to us. Even when it's very specific, I remember living... I don't remember which webinar I mentioned this in, but I lived in a town in Israel where I was working as a doctor, where we had a series of very strange events, tragic events, always in the same area. Pregnant women losing their pregnancies. In bizarre ways, one of them was shot in the abdomen by an Arab on a bus. You're talking about a series of pregnancy losses in a community, one after another. Very worrying. What do you do about that? So the two doctors in the community and the rabbi we went to see the great stipler of Chaim Kenevsky's father, he said to us, don't even think about it. We have no way of reading these things. We said, but it's so specific. This is not a random series of tragedies. It's in the same area. Well, we thought about it. There was nothing clearly in our community linked to that. There was nothing linked to pregnancies or anything that one could connect in any way. And therefore, he said, we can't read the signs. We said, but look, again, the Hashem is sending us a message clearly. He's telling us a clear message. 
He said, we do not know how to read the message, even when it appears to be such a specific message. The, the point is, although the message is specific, the cause is not, the connection is not. What you do, by the way, that's a different story. And here's where we get to the, to the good news. In that particular circumstance, he told us that everyone in the community who could should fast on Erev Rosh Chodesh that month, right, Yom Kippur Cotton. We did it. Everybody who possibly could fasted in the community, and we never, we never saw another case of that. <clears throat> but that is the point about general, when the doctor doesn't know what the specific infection is, <clears throat> he gives a broad-spectrum antibiotic. <clears throat> the Gomorrah actually speaks, speaks this out specifically. It says, when you don't know why something bad is happening to you, go through the layers of your life. Fix what you can fix. Fix what you find. If you find nothing, put it down to your Torah learning. That's the lifeline, the umbilical cord, the broad-spectrum antibiotic. That's what you focus on when you cannot find any other imperfection. I'm sure all of our wonderful listeners and viewers, if they go through their lives, I'm sure they will find nothing they could fix, nothing specifically wrong with themselves. Fine, put it down to your Torah learning. Plug into the JLE. Spend some of every day uh, participating in our Torah learning programs. What's your alternative? Checking your email and your social media again and again and again? This is drive you crazy and depress you. So, that is the... The bad news is we don't know why things are happening. But listen well to the good news. <clears throat> Although we don't know why, we do know what. Let me explain this clearly. It's very important to understand. <clears throat> when you don't know why he's doing something, but you can see what he's doing, <clears throat> and all that he's doing is intended. That's an axiom. Victor Miller used to speak this out very clearly and beautifully. When we do something in life, it has side effects. We can't control the side effects. They may be tragic. Here's a judge. He's judging a man for a crime. The law requires that the man is put in jail. The man spends five years in jail, ten years in jail. There's terrible, terrible harm to his family. Terrible harm. His wife is alone, <laughs> humiliated, maybe an outcast. His children are unbearably suffering. There is collateral damage. They don't deserve that. Here's a father... Right? These children are not to blame for what he did. And here's a man sitting in jail or going through, and he comes out, he's a jailbird, he's unemployable. There are long-lasting damage to the family. Why should they suffer? Human society cannot, cannot cope with the collateral damage. Right? When the judge sentences the man to a sentence, the judge does not take into account the effect on the man's family. That's what justice is in our world. Very imperfect. Very imperfect. This man's jail sentence, which may be well be what he deserves, I'm not saying that jail is a Jewish punishment, but right, we have other ways of <coughs> getting people to make recompense. <coughs> but whatever the recompense is, look at the collateral damage. Society doesn't even think about that. <coughs> Let me give you a medical example. The doctor gives a medication. Brilliant medication. Goes to the heart of the <coughs> chemistry, whatever it is, makes the patient much better. But there's side effects. There are cancers today that we can virtually cure. There are some childhood cancers that we can actually eradicate. But look at the side effects. The patient may be left sterile. They, have to, they will go through pain. They may go through tremendous side effects of the medication. Now, those were not intended. right? Cancer therapy, for example, chemotherapy, it knocks out all rapidly dividing cells. Great, it kills the cancer, but it kills all the other rapidly dividing cells too. So your gut sloughs off and your hair falls out. Now, when God does something, his side effects are intended as well. So when, when Hashem does something, makes somebody ill, and the collateral effects on their family, a man loses his job, so it affects his family too. That's intended as well. 
let's get this clear. There's nothing that God does with unintended side effects. And therefore, everything that does, He does is intended. So when you're locked up at home, that's intended too. Let's get this clear. <clears throat> we don't know why He's doing it. But we see what He's doing and that we can read. So look at the consequences. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> this is a disease that is causing anxiety among certain vulnerable people. Important. He intends that. This is not killing children, <clears throat> Baruch Hashem, <clears throat> as far as we know. He intends that too. That, uh, that type of anxiety does not want you to have. He wants you to be anxious about your grandfather and your parents and those people in your family who are vulnerable. He does not want you to be anxious about your little kids. That's intended. You need to, you need to read that. Not read it as why he wants this, but read it as what is he doing. And take that seriously. He wants you isolated in your home. That's the consequence. And in most places it's the law. That's intended. That's intended. So when you're locked up at home, and this is what this disease is causing you to do, although we don't know why, but we know that he wants that, which means that you rise to the challenge. If you're stuck at home, you don't just lament it, right? You, uh, you revel in it. Use this to build your relationship with your family. Use this to d- develop self-discipline so you have an exercise schedule and you have a learning schedule, right? What can you do in isolation? Not only that, he's put you into isolation with um, tremendous tools of communication, He's locked me into my house and I can speak to thousands of people. Right? Previously, if I would walk into the jail, I might speak to a few dozen. Fortunately, I might speak to a few hundred. I might speak to a couple of people or ten people at a time around a table. Now I can sit at home in my computer and I can speak to people. I'm running webinars that, that, that people, I do a webinar at night that people in Australia log on to. I've got people who wake up at 5 or 6 in the morning in Australia and New Zealand, and they're part of the webinar. <clears throat> right? <clears throat> so what's he done? <clears throat> Locked you into your home, given you the tools, and the bandwidth, and the technology to be able to reach out around the world. That's unbelievable. He's also given you... So, so think about it like that. What are the... Think creatively. What is he, where has he put you? Where have you been locked down? What tools do you have at your disposal? These are all intended. Yes, it's true. The, the Drosha Saran, in the 8th Drosha, the Drosha Saran says that Hashem also does things by general rules. Okay, this is important to understand as well. I might perhaps leave this as a challenge to you to think about. There are things that Hashem does in the world where He puts a general energy into the world. Let me give you the example of the Drosha Saran. Drosha Saran says that if Hashem wants the sun to shine, let's say for argument's sake, He wants the summer sun to shine, to ripen the crops and the fruits and the sun beats down. Now there's a general energy called the sun shining <clears throat> in the summer. Once there's a general energy, a general entity of the sun shining, it will affect you. Let's say there's a righteous person. Righteous person that God will, you know, would ordinarily protect, deserves special, special protection. Person doing exactly what he ought to be doing in the world. That man takes a walk in the sun. He's going to get sunburned. If he spends too much time in the sun, he might get heat stroke. Right? Now why is this person getting heat stroke? It's not because Hashem has sent a direct agency to give him that problem. It's because Hashem is making the sun shine. And once the sun shines, it has the effects of the sun shining. So it will ripen the crops, but it will also give you a bad sunburn. Right? If you're out in the sun. And if you're too much out in the sun, you might get heat stroke. The run is explaining that Hashem runs the world by what he calls general flow of energy. When Hashem puts a, a rule of chemistry into the world, then the thing has a general effect. And so if you, if you drink something that's poisonous, right? There's a chemical effect of that thing. It's not necessarily that that was meant to kill you, says the run. But once there's forces of chemistry and physics and cosmology, 
and chemistry and all the other <coughs> energies in the world, <coughs> they're intended as general tools or general flows of energy into the world, and you will be affected by them in your specific. That's true. And yet it's all intended. It's not a contradiction to what we're saying. You can think through how, this, how these two fit together, and I'll leave that to you. But the way we deal with a difficult human situation, whether it's, God forbid, an illness, or isolation, or an epidemic, a pandemic, or some problem in your family, <clears throat> whatever it is, we don't know why, but we know what. person with emotional problems, person with certain medical problems, family problems, whatever they are, or advantages, certain tools and certain blessings and advantages, or the constellation of blessings and curses, advantages and disadvantages that each of us has. Okay? We don't know exactly what his calculation is and why he puts those into the world, but we see what he's done. So your job is to take the opportunity. The fact that it's a difficult time has got nothing to do with whether... There's not a reason to shut down. No matter how difficult it is, there's a challenge and something to achieve. They say the Jewish people can plant trees in a burning forest. Isn't that beautiful? We can plant trees in a burning forest. And therefore, when the fuss burning around you, you don't sit down and, and weep and lament and mourn and do nothing about it. You plant another tree. Ah, the fire will spread and burn your tree. That's God's problem, not yours. And therefore, you find yourself in a difficult situation. We've had deaths already. We had a sudden death in Hendon last night in a person... Right, I don't even know if his breathing was compromised yet. I'm not exactly sure what the facts were. So we've had deaths already. We've got some people desperately ill in hospital. At the moment we're seeing an escalating part of the curve. <clears throat> but to take the challenge, what can you do? If you've recovered from the disease, let's think about whether you can get out and do something because we think you're immune. That needs further research, but that's the direction we're going in. If you're locked down at home, what old person can you contact and help prepare for Pesach? <clears throat> JLE is putting together tremendous m motivation of programs that we intend to run, that we've begun to run, sending out Pesach packages to people who, who are isolated, matzah, grape juice, right, mobilize funds for this, a Haggadah to people, right, English, French, whatever it is, translations. What can you do in this opportunity? Are you skilled at technology? Do you have money? What do you have in these circumstances that you can use? That's your challenge. We don't know why Hashem has put you into that particular situation with your particular talents and your particular finances and <coughs> creativity. <coughs> but we certainly know that He has. We certainly know that you have these abilities. Your challenge without understanding why is to understand what and use that what correctly. I hope this is, I hope this is plain. Right? My job happens to be <coughs> trying to teach Torah in the most sophisticated and beautiful way that I can. He's given me the tools. He's sitting me at home in front of a computer. <laughs> He's challenging me to come up with new, new shirim, talk about the situation in ways that I can, research it, try to develop, develop. So whatever my, that's my particular, right? Teach me how to try to get on with my family, right? In ways better than I've done before. <coughs> my person, I, I travel a lot, so I don't have to do that too much. Now I have to actually do some of that. Whatever it is. And therefore, <clears throat> when you ask the question of why things happen, the answer is we don't know. But we understand what happens and we can read that carefully. Throw up your hands in despair and say, oh, you know, no response to this. No, that's not correct. Okay, this has been a brief introduction to some of the coronavirus-related things. Now, Emir Hashem, I'd like to follow up with specifics. So, Emir Hashem, next week I'll talk about why things happen in detail. The Ramchal in Derech Hashem, in one incredible place, stupendous, absolutely astounding place, declares that there are 12 reasons why things happen in the world. Isn't that amazing? In the new commentary that just came out, he says, <coughs> that means it's uh, fitting to be totally flabbergasted that one person could have such an overview of Judaism 
that he can categorically tell you <coughs> that there are these twelve and only these twelve reasons why things happen. <coughs> Be warned. The Ramchal is not going to explain to you why particular things are happening to you. No, that not. But he's going to give you a list of twelve things that are the reasons for why everything happens in the world. Everything. Life and birth, death, disease, epidemics, pandemics. Every a righteous person suffering. Whatever happens in the world, says the Ramchal, the reason is one of twelve things. And he goes into the complexity of these twelve and what happens when they conflict with each other. So, Mirz Hashem, I'll give a shir next week. Mirz Hashem. As Ramash used to say, if Hashem, Im Hashem I'll give a talk next week, one talk, Mirz Hashem, why do things happen in specific detail? I'll give a second talk, Mirz Hashem, on risk to doctors and caregivers. How, what is the Jewish approach to how much risk one needs to undertake when you are caring for others? Anyone's Hebrew is good enough? Rav Weiss gave a talk about this. A number of talks about this. I have one of them recorded. <coughs> if you email me, <coughs> happy to download that to you. <coughs> it, it, oh, 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 excuse me. His talk is in English. Excuse me. His talk is in English, so you want to hear of Rav Weiss on that subject. A person who has great responsibility in this direct area today. I'm very happy to download. I will give some of the background and explanations in a talk next week. So in summary, next week, Imit Hashem, why do things happen in detail? Um, go through the 12 reasons and understand that and a second talk on danger to doctors and caregivers how much may how much is one obliged to risk one's life to save others and how much may one go even beyond it and risk one's life even more right for that for that purpose um, thank you very much to Gemma we are out of time thank you to all of you Ellie Natan you'll have to ask me your question privately on email please I just can't deal with that now uh, please go to the JLE site. We try to channel as much as we can. Uh, excellent, extremely excellent educational content in this difficult time. We are organizing to do that ever more efficiently. And please go and see what our offerings are over there. And um, upgrade your learning. Um, get your act together. Do better. <coughs> and Amit Sashem will all be... Yes, I do have the link to Rabbi Miller. If you, I don't know how to put it on a Zoom, but if you email me, very happy to give you that. Okay, all the best. Thank you very much. Look forward to seeing you on Sunday morning. We give two classes on a Sunday morning. Uh, Maharal first at 11.15 and Rosh Saran at 12.15. Please feel free to join that. <coughs> Those are both in English. And then again on Monday night, on, I believe, Wednesday night, Thursday lunch and noon possibly. Just log into the JLE and... Uh, avail yourself. Esther uh, Elizabeth W. Nice to have you with us. Regards to the family. And thank you very much, Mark. Regards to everyone and to all my French and Belgian and Israeli friends. Nice to have you with us. Thank you and all the best. <laughs>